Hello out there, all you wonderful wolves. Thanks for joining us for another week of A Little Greener podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. Our goal is to share things with you about the natural world to get you interested and inspired and hopefully give you some ideas and challenges to start living your life a little greener and realizing all of the little ways that we impact the world around us. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined as always by my delightful co-host, Casey. Happy Boxing Day, Casey, right? <laughs> Isn't that what today It is? is Boxing Day. Not that uh, I think when you see it on the calendar, it's like Boxing Day parentheses uk okay <laughs> hey listen we have listeners all over the we world. do hello uk listeners happy You're boxing so, day i mean it's not boxing day related boxing day. <laughs> it's coming up on the new year um it's right after christmas for us here and while we're recording sarah i do have a little greener story to tell you excellent i was at christmas eve with my family and my cousins come in to the house and my cousin ben who is an avid listener of our podcast walks right up to me and goes hey i have a bone to pick with you and i was like oh boy. what he's like what's with this week's episode i was like what and he was like i wanted fusion <laughs> so ben i will do a fusion episode for you in the future i was like big cat public safety act is topical he was like yeah but i was waiting for an explainer so um yes there was some fusion news they did the fusion yes. and successful and we will do an episode about more details on that later but Hank green I, did a video yes yes i've watched a little bit of things but yes um so that will be for oh, ben and that's for anyone funny other sorry other ben that was my bad my fault. i was like I was like, further bad news, I'm doing another episode related to that same topic, but then we will get in there. So yes, hopefully he enjoys uh, our last episode, Big Cat Public Safety Act, um, and all the updates for that. And if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to it, because this week is related. Yes, I was about to say that, because obviously it has been a holiday weekend, so people are probably very busy with family and friends and other things and may not have gotten a chance to listen totally understandable but yes do just know that the topic for this week and last week are are sort of related generally you can listen in whatever order you want and honestly you can probably do that with these two but they are related so definitely check that one out if you haven't gotten a chance yet well speaking of that sarah i'm going to start us off with a question because we might have a little bit of a long one on our hands today our episode today is about responsible pet ownership, and I was wondering if you could tell us about the types of animals you have owned over the course of your life. Yeah, for I mean, for me personally, it's actually pretty straightforward, I guess. The, the, the animals that I feel like have really been mine are really just cats and dogs. I had birds and rabbits as well growing up that were sort what kind of, of birds? Like mine. Parakeets. Okay, yes. Yes, so small birds. That's I never ever felt like I could handle or wanted a larger bird, which we might get into a little bit more. But we had lots of other animals, as I know we've talked about on other episodes. Uh, growing up, we had a lot of reptiles. My dad had a lot of lizards, primarily green iguanas. We had some turtles. We had a chameleon. We had snakes for a short period of time as well. But yeah, lots of green iguanas over the years were the big ones. And I think that's it. Had the, the lizards, the rabbits, the birds, 
couple of cats, and my dog that I currently have as my first dog ever. I think that's it. I didn't know that Murray was your first dog ever. Yeah, first dog ever, ever. Like oh, my wow. entire life. I it's could not have asked for a better one. A little horse butterfly. A little horse butterfly. <laughs> dainty. <laughs> I, um, when I was a kid, we had a dog and a cat and then they passed away and then I desperately wanted a dog and my mom's like what about a fish tank so we got a fish tank and I'm like this is not a dog <laughs> I did have fish too yes goldfish um so then we got a dog and uh as I got a little bit older we got a cat I also delved into the parakeet world <laughs> and um <laughs> and then obviously when Andrew and I got together mm-hmm. I inherited uh, my stepkids basically which are a bunch of um we've got a bird a little parrotlet named luna and then we have a whole bunch of tortoises and snakes and geckos and some other lizards at this point the collection i i think is around we have frogs and salamanders as well it's like 28 or something like wow that. <laughs> too many <laughs> i mean too many from a normal human standpoint like when you get to 28 pets it becomes like not just like part of your life it is a like a hobby chore like thing that you can't just like spend a day just letting the dog out you have to go actually engage with your pets every day yeah I I mean you know people have farms and stuff that have lots of animals that is you know that is they might be pets but it's also chores exactly and just for those of you who may not listen as regularly might not be familiar again Casey's husband Andrew is a reptile keeper like he takes care of reptiles he's a zookeeper (laughs) professionally yeah this is actually his profession that also uh is a a hobby I guess you would say at home outside of the profession if that's a fair way to describe it yeah and we'll talk a little bit I guess I'll just delve into Andrew's life a little bit as we go through this episode because I do think that there's certain things that Andrew does that sort of sets him apart from maybe a a general hobbyist or an amateur yes I wasn't sure about using that word yeah I didn't want to imply that but yeah right um so We'll we'll talk a little bit about that because you might be like, Casey, you're going to do an episode about responsible pet ownership and you have 28 pets. Is that truly <laughs> responsible? And I want to talk about it because I it's something I think about all the time and that I think that anyone who has 28 pets should always evaluate what's going on in their house, in their lives, um, and and talk about some of the decisions that that we had to make anytime we had acquired a new animal. And so that's what today's episode is about. It's it's inspired by Sarah's last week's episode because um, people have tigers as pets in some parts of the country. And I wanted to talk about how to make those decisions, in my opinion, that's kind of the best way to determine if a pet's actually good for you and if you're actually good for that pet. So that's what today's episode's about. I hope you stick around and we'll talk about it in a moment. All right. So we are back. We're going to go through some, I think I have five basic areas where we talk about questions and issues to think about when you're acquiring a pet. Um, I have some general guidelines moving forward because I want to kind of disclaimer 
(laughs) this whole episode. This is my opinion, but it is my opinion based on my experience as both a pet owner and someone who has worked in the conservation field and has decent knowledge of general animal behavior and things like that. And I'm hoping that Sarah will have lots of her own things to add and she might disagree with me on some points and that is valid. And you guys might disagree with me on some points. And I look forward to those kinds of discussions because I think that it's worth having. I'm not claiming to be a perfect pet owner. I think that it's important to note that life is messy. And so we can't approach this from a I will be perfect at being a pet owner. I think like even thinking back about my dog growing up, all the things that I would change about what we did as we learned, you're going to learn more things as you're a pet owner. This is a guide for both domestic and exotic pets because Sarah did hers about exotic pets last week. So this is going to be a combo of both. And I don't think that people who don't follow my guidelines are bad people. (laughs) I think that's, they're not malicious. I don't think they're necessarily bad people. I just have my own standards. And I think anyone who has animals in their lives should have some standards in their head of what they think is the best case scenario for the pets in their lives. That sounds good, Sarah. It sounds good. And you said this, but I just kind of want to reiterate because you did say this, this is your opinion. I'll give my opinion to if I have them or can formulate them uh, or if they they differ. But I do think that there is, and I know we'll talk about it too, there, there is a solid fact base for some of the things that we are going to talk about. So you might hear people with different opinions, but I think sometimes within those opinions, they disregard facts, facts <laughs> about animals and domestication and that type of thing. So just keep that in mind as well. There absolutely are differing opinions uh, on things that we're going to talk about in this subject, but, but we can't disregard what the science tells us to. Right. And we'll have some sources in the show notes that you should be able to see wherever you're listening to this podcast that kind of links to some of the places where we might be sorting some facts and numbers. But there are obviously, this is a really, really broad topic that I'm trying to distill down to like Mm -hmm. an hour. So we're going to skip over things you might think are important. I think that it's also important to think about the fact that a lot of people own pets or own animals, I guess, for different reasons. So some people do own them for companionship. Some people own pets for food. So like um, we have chickens at my dad's store. Uh, some of our employees really like interacting with them and most of them just like collecting the eggs and eating the eggs. And (laughs) that is a perfectly valid reason to keep chickens, at least in my opinion. And some people will interact with animals for entertainment purposes. And what you want out of your relationship with your animal really should kind of start dictating what are your options out there. And so that's something that I think everyone should think about is like, what is your goal? This is the animal. Yes, this is like the number one first question. And I think sometimes people really do disregard this when they're thinking about what type of pet they have. Because if you ask this question to somebody, and you know, I think you and I have we've talked about this before. We both in our fields of work have had people come up to us and ask us about getting XYZ animal as a pet, oftentimes an exotic animal. And if they really thought about what their goal was in getting a pet, 
and then thought about the characteristics of said animal they're asking about, they will see that those two things actually don't line up as well. And they don't even, they like the idea of the animal that they're asking about, but they would not actually, what that animal is would not actually fit their goal of pet ownership. So I think this is a hugely important question to to ask yourself. Right. I think people really want the like Disney princess version Mm -hmm. of owning any of these animals where they like sing and the animal comes over and they snuggle and they love Mm -hmm. each other and that's your animal sidekick for life I think about sloths all the time in this regard because I think a lot of people when they imagine having a pet they do imagine like interacting with it and receiving some sort of reciprocal love from that pet or at least attention and like sloths are a prime example of an animal that does not want you to hang out with it (laughs) even sloths that are like habituated to people generally are not like thrilled to see you and like hang out with you it's a stressor for them (laughs) they're like leave me alone i'm awake at nighttime just don't don't touch me please and i think actually a thing i didn't list on this is that i think that a lot of people think about pursuing some of these pets because of status as well Mm -hmm. like how many people want to post their instagram photo of them with a cool animal and think how cool would I seem if I had XYZ exotic pet in my life? And just remember, like everything else you see on social media, (laughs) that's not the truth of it generally. You know, that that one Instagram worthy moment is not worth all of the reality (laughs) reality that's going to come along with them. So let's start with, I think, like the most baseline question after you've determined if your goal of owning the animal is aligning with the the species that you're looking at is is it legal to own this pet in the first place Solid and, question <laughs> and that changed it changed by the way as of the recording of our last episode we were talking about that big cat public safety act has now officially been signed into law so right so it is now illegal for you personally for your pet ownership purposes to acquire a big cat Great. Good. (laughs) Um, We're very happy about that. Uh, But that very much varies outside of big cats Mm -hmm. from state to state. So you really have to like check to see from state to state what your laws are, but not even just your state laws, your local laws, your city ordinances for some of these pets. And then even the lease that you're, if you're renting a place, what are you allowed to do (laughs) as far as your lease goes? And I don't think that all of these laws are necessarily straightforward. So the fact that like you can't own a tiger or like if your state bans chimpanzee ownership feels like, okay, I get that. There are certain laws that are, I think, surprising to some people. You have some fascinating things on here, Casey, that I was (laughs) not aware of. For example, in Pennsylvania, you cannot own a hedgehog. I had no idea. Yeah, I don't, I, when I, I remember when I was working at the Philadelphia Zoo, because we had them, you have to have like a special, it's Mm -hmm. an exhibitor's license, so it's different than personal pet ownership, but I think it had to do with some sort of invasive species law. African hedgehogs, they hate the cult, so I don't think they would do very well, but European hedgehogs maybe have a, a more likelihood of establishing a population and being an issue. That is a reason that states will limit some of these species is because of invasive species. Right. I know we have some more specific laws here in Florida that I'm not as well versed on as I should be, but I know that we do have 
laws about certain animals because of that invasive species issue because of the climate here. And again, we're approaching this from uh, maybe not like the perfect scenario, because in the perfect scenario, no pets would ever escape. No disasters would ever happen and no one would ever let their pet go. But like, that's not the world we live in. So that's one of the reasons that you'll see some of those laws. In my dad's township, you have to have at least two acres of property to own chickens. Wow. I don't like that law. Yeah, that seems a bit excessive. <laughs> uh, yes, especially like chickens. More if you had it. like, a, if you, it was a, like a, a rooster and like it was a noise issue, I guess I would get that a little more, but you can't have hens that are yeah. generally very quiet. Yeah. Unless you have two acres, it feels very like exclusionary to anyone who's not a big property owner. Yeah. And I I don't know about city laws here, but I know in my neighborhood uh, when I bought my house, that was one of the things that uh, I learned is that I'm not allowed to have chickens. And I'm very sad about that because I actually would love to get some chickens and get some eggs, but I cannot do that in my house. Um, I believe it's in Indiana. I could be wrong on this one, but you can't own a gator over five feet long so you could at least in some areas own an alligator but once it reaches a certain size you can't own the alligator so that's a thing to consider yeah uh number two will basically exclude gators anyway (laughs) and then like i said some leases are going to to restrict you as well so in some apartment complexes they have breed restrictions breed restrictions yeah size restrictions number restrictions yes or you have to pay a pet fee Mm -hmm. if you've got certain animals um whether or not you think this is fair doesn't mean it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and so if you're someone who does rent and you expect yourself to continue renting from places it's something to think about if you're acquiring a pet to know that it might cost you more in order to own that pet and it might exclude you from certain ha- certain housing situations if you have a certain pet in my rental experience our landlords didn't really care about all the reptiles but they didn't want any aquatic turtles or fish tanks because they had had experiences where the tank had broken and damaged the floor so mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily you'd be like a fish tank the least obstructive like thing that you could bring into an apartment for them was like an absolute no (laughs) in one of the houses we were in plenty of space they just didn't want it because of damages so it's something you have to to think about uh with your housing situation and it's a really good point to think you know you have to think a little bit longer term too Mm because whether or not you know your current lease has those restrictions it might be something that your apartment complex adds on or if you have to move or whatever. And even, you know, thinking about like when I was house hunting down here, I had to think about my dog. Like I've learned that I can't live somewhere with stairs. I w- I couldn't get oh, yeah. a house that was going to have two stories because he can't do it. Um, you know, so that <laughs> my pet ownership and my decision to own the dog that I do and, you know, want to provide the care for him restricted my house buying you know and and that's that is just something that you have to consider when you're considering a pet it it changes your life um mm-hmm. even things like you would think i can own a dog it doesn't matter in pittsburgh you can't have more than four dogs and cats in the same house total um, yeah <laughs> and then in indianapolis for example this doesn't have to do with like you owning the dog but you can't have them outside under certain temperatures or over certain temperatures. And so if you're planning on keeping your animal 
in certain conditions like outdoors mm-hmm. all the time it is not legal to do that all the time <laughs> in uh in different places so you really want to check okay not only can i legally own this animal but are there limitations regarding its care that might prevent me from being able to own it that is like very basic stuff for cats and dogs a lot of those are covered in there for exotic species You'll also probably want to check things like the endangered species list or CITES, which is that uh, convention on international International trade of endangered species. (laughs) Um, uh, Because if uh, and we'll talk a little bit about acquiring those pets, certain pets might be illegal to acquire over state lines or over countries' borders if you're looking to get them. They also might be protected in certain circumstances. So it's nice to know. If they're on any of these lists, it could impede your ability to travel with them or you might need certain documentation regarding that species. So that is number one, is very baseline. Legally, can I own this animal? And legally, can I care for it the way that I'm supposed to in the area that I live and in the areas that I might live? Yeah, it feels very baseline, but like those things that you brought up, Casey, like this is a thing I always think about with regards to exotic species. You don't necessarily think about it as much with animals that might seem less exotic (laughs) and some of those, you know, some of those more interesting laws. So yeah, definitely good to check. I wanted to be very inclusive with this list because I, I think that like, for example, I own exotic species that I think a lot of people don't care about very much. <laughs> like, people aren't as worried about you owning a turtle as they are a tiger in most scenarios. But that being said, there's, a, uh, I think, a spectrum of domestication to exotic mm-hmm. to things that you can keep versus things that you very much shouldn't. So um, all of those I wanted to cover in this list. Uh, number two, can I safely own this animal? So even if it's legal for me to have... Can I safely own them even if there's an accident, even if situations aren't 100% perfect? So uh, for me, this excludes big cats, bears, crocodilians, <laughs> venomous snakes. And f- also for me, I've expanded that rule. So we have snakes. We have a ball python, a California king snake, and a rainbow boa. They, if you're not familiar with snakes, don't really get bigger than four to five feet And for me, that's about as big as we're going to go, because if something were to happen and the snake's tank was open, I would be afraid of them killing my cat. And so I don't want to own anything that in an accident would hunt and eat my cat. (laughs) Right. And I mean, that is is a very logical rule, although I get technically I have broken that rule. My dog could easily kill my cat if he want, you know, so that's I guess one of those instances where you think about he I, I would say he won't. Uh, right. And I don't think that he will. And their personalities are such that I don't think he will. But as you point out, you know, anything could happen. So there is a line there. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. But um, but yeah, that is but something also, to think about. you wouldn't have brought home Jack if you knew that Murray was a cat aggressive. Right. Dog. It was this was tested. He was tried with cats beforehand and, and all of that. Um, but it is an interesting thing to think about because, as you say, this is sort of what if there is an accident because this is an argument. I would agree with you that this would exclude uh, all those big cats, crocodilians, all of that. But you will have people who own those types of animals that say things like that. Oh, there's no way they wouldn't do this. We have a relationship. 
and all of those things. But I would argue that <laughs> uh, even if th that is true and there's never been any indication of it, that alligator could kill you. Right. And, you know, and, and it only takes one instance, you know, and we hear about it all the time. You know, the the woman who was mauled by somebody else's chimpanzee. We talked about the Siegfried and Roy incident last week. So those things to me exclude those those large dangerous animals. But I do have an animal in my house that could injure my other animal. And I have my dog has injured our tortoises before. Mm -hmm. So like accidents do happen. And the more animals you add, the higher risk of some sort of interaction that could be risky to those animals. I think it's important, like you said, to also draw lines of saying, yeah, that tiger may have not had an incidence with you. But what happens if a kid sticks his hand in right. the cage? And I think that actually also kind of goes towards domesticated animals as well. I was well. just about to say that because I do think that that is an important distinction because people will say, oh, well, he's he's tame, he's trained, right. whatever. And that's very different from an animal being domesticated. My dog is a domesticated animal. Dogs have been selectively bred over thousands of years to make them calmer and less aggressive and more suitable to be around humans. And a tiger is not a domesticated animal. So even if you have an individual who is habituated, habituated yeah, to, to being around people and has a personality that makes them more amenable to be so, it does not change the fact that they are still a wild animal. And that makes a huge difference. You cannot personally domesticate an animal. That is something that happens generations. over generations and generations of a species or breed. It does not happen because you have trained a particular individual to be comfortable and, around you. And this you. is one of those moments where th this is a science. This is a fact. That's, that's right. not something that you can argue. That's what domestication is. Right. Now, to talk a little bit about some of those accidents, Sarah pointed out that we've had like 400 incidences of big cats injuries um, that helped prompt the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And I was trying to look at snake issues because like big snakes are like Andrew is like, we will never have a reticulated python or Burmese python. And these are the animals that get to be, you know, 20 plus feet long. <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt because it's the only thing I could find. And it's from Responsible Exotic Pet Ownership, which seems to be an advocacy group for being able to own exotic pets without anybody okay. <laughs> telling them what to do. But I mean, their their data set seemed pretty, I, I don't want to say super robust. I don't know that there's an easy way to make it robust. But basically, they looked at news reports of people being killed by their pet snakes. And they aggregated those from 1990 to 2012. And only 10 people in the U.S. Uh, were killed by pet large constrictors. So this doesn't account. This doesn't account for any uh, venomous snakes, for example. You shouldn't own venomous snakes. You shouldn't. Quick aside: if you own venomous snakes and you don't have the anti venom, and you get bit by your venomous snake, and it is not a native snake, they have to call the local zoo who might have the anti venom and take their anti venom to treat you. That may or may not work. And now that zoo's out of anti venom. It's not cool. It's don't not do cool. it. Don't, don't do it. So the large constrictors that were on here are Burmese python. 
They accounted for the most deaths, but they're also the most popular of all of the species. Um, Reticulated python, rock python, and a boa constrictor, which are not as big as some of those other ones. Their argument is basically that it's super rare for a snake to attack. It doesn't pose a risk to the public. But Andrew pointed out that this excludes all other accidents. So this excludes the near misses of someone getting injured by their their python, near deaths, deaths of other pets. And so when you just aggregate deaths together, it doesn't necessarily paint a full picture of the danger that an animal poses. True. And I know you have some numbers in here on on like dog incidents mm-hmm. and things like that, because I think that's an argument that people will make is that there's, it's less dangerous, uh, you know, than owning a dog, which I don't the number of dogs that exist as pets versus the number of snakes and makes a difference but it's it's also not the only argument against owning those types of snakes and we've mentioned some of them before just in terms of the uh, invasive species risk and you know we talk about the pet trade and, and all of those things so it's not an apples to apples argument to just talking about those number of instances yeah and and lest you think that we are not snake people Sarah and I have interacted with many lovely Burmese pythons that we like very much. (laughs) Very, very much. I mentioned last week I would like to have a pet snake again in the future. So yes, love snakes for sure. Just the right context. Yes. (laughs) And I've had friends who have had large snakes and they have been very attentive pet owners. It's just a line for me personally. And I think Mm -hmm. that we need to think about all of the consequences for people, especially who might be new at owning these animals. Um, Yeah. Domesticated animals. I actually think that we should include big dogs in this category as something to consider that they could be a risk because in terms of safe ownership. Yeah. In in terms of safe ownership, I have worked and not worked, but volunteered at the public shelter in the city where I've worked and the number of dogs that are returned because they are quote a safety concern for someone or their children is a real thing and whether that's just because the dog is rambunctious or because the dog actually bites that doesn't seem like either way they're returned for the same reason if you have small children in your house it might not be a good idea to bring home a giant dog especially if you're not willing to do the training. And I think that's the key difference. If you're going to bring home a big dog, I don't care what breed it is. And honestly, everyone who has a dog should get training for it. But big dogs are going to be that next class of animal that can injure you. You got to get it some sort of training plan for it. According to a Sneed Mitchell injury team, 30 to 50 people a year in the U.S. die from dog attacks and 800,000 people receive medical attention for dog bites. If you go on this website, it is linked because I, I got it from there. They got it from like the American Medical Association. I think most of their other statistics are pretty shaky um, because they talk about certain breeds that are more likely to bite. To me, the the bites that are reported are from large dogs. They're not. You're not typically going to report sure. a small dog biting you because like you have to deal with either the insurance company, the police or the medical system. And neither none of those are good Uh, things that people want to interact with. So if a small dog doesn't hurt you that bad, you're less likely to report them. Um, And like they say, oh, you're more likely to get bit by a dog in an urban area than a rural area. Yes, there are more dogs in Mm -hmm. urban areas than there are rural areas. So it's just something to keep in mind that like domestic animals are not excluded from this conversation of safety in my mind. Totally agree. I mean, and there's a reason I got the dog that I did. Like I said, it was my first dog and I I like big dogs, but I knew that I was not equipped 
either with the knowledge or the time to spend a long time training. And so I adopted a dog that was has a very sweet, docile, eager to please personality and had already been trained uh, by somebody else before, <laughs> uh, before I got him at least trained in, you know, basic housebroken leash walking, you know, all, all of that kind of thing. So, yes, it is definitely something to keep in mind. You know, I, again, I, I think it's sometimes uh, people see a dog breed on um, the movies or on TV and they're like, oh, it would be so fun to have a dog like that without really taking into consideration the size or the temperament or whatever of that particular breed. Gotta keep an eye out. Um, part two of this question is, does this animal pose a disease threat? And am I willing to mitigate this threat? So safety is not just like, are you physically getting bit, constricted, right. etc. Um, <laughs> uh, there, are, there are other ways that animals can harm you. Um, one of the biggest categories of animal for this one to me is primates. So primates being so closely related to us can share a lot of the same diseases as us. The first thing you should know is that basically all primatologists out there will tell you that primates are not pets. Personally, I don't care if it's chimpanzee, a lemur, a spider monkey, like none of them are good pets for you. This is another one where this one, I just feel like falls in every category. Like there are yeah. so many reasons not to own a primate disease possibility being one of those reasons. Right. They just tend to be a prime example, but yes, mm -hmm. their care is way too advanced for most average people. And by most, I don't mean you're the special exception to that rule. I mean, like basically everyone, <laughs> unless you're like a professionally trained person, you should not be having a primate. Um, but primates are a disease vector for all sorts of diseases. Um, we know that some zoonotic diseases originate in primate populations and you need to have basically all your pets vaccinated against potential diseases, but accidents still happen. Um, the girlfriend of a UT football coach was recently sued last year after her pet capuchin monkey bit a trick-or-treater. So she originally claimed that this kid snuck back into the backyard and should have never interacted. The parents claimed that she invited them in the backyard and the monkey was going to give them a high five and it bit the child. But being sued is probably the least of your worries. Because in 2010, a capuchin had to be euthanized to test it for rabies after it bit someone, even though it had been vaccinated for rabies, even though the owner had taken those precautions, you test for rabies by testing brain tissue. Mm -hmm. And so legally in New York, where this happened, they had to euthanize the monkey. And I mean, it's good that they had gotten those vaccinations, but yeah, that to to realize that that's, that's still the law and still needed to be done. And brings up the point also that if you're thinking about getting some of these pets, you have to find somebody who is going to do that vet care and be able to give you the appropriate, give your animal the appropriate vaccinations. And that in and of itself is a huge challenge with some of these animals. For sure. But domesticated animals also fall under this. Um, we talked about in our Red Panda episode that there is spillover from our domesticated animals. Things like rabies, distemper can spill over into our native wildlife populations. So you got to make sure that you're willing to keep your animal up to date on shots. It's not really as optional as, as it for these things as if you care about animals, you should be caring about the wildlife in your area as well. Um, and that's a good way to protect your dog or cat other people's dogs and cats, but also your local species in your backyard. 
All right. The next one is, and perhaps some people are like, this would be my first question, is can I provide quality care for this animal? I don't put this as number three because it's the least important. I just think that the first two exclude enough of the animals that we should be talking about and are less of a personal judgment call than this one is. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I feel like they're all important. I almost feel like I I don't even rank them. I feel like sure. these are just all all of these. This is just a list of questions that you need to ask yourself. There's no ranking order. Ask yourself all of these questions before you get a pet. Good point. All animals have certain requirements to have a good standard of living. You have to, in my mind, research a pet before mm-hmm. you bring it home. I would encourage you to do this even if you've owned this type of animal before because new research comes out all the time on dogs, let alone everything else. (laughs) So the way that your parents raised the dog is not necessarily the way that if you're trying to go by the best new science, you would raise the dog because new stuff comes out all the time. Um, Look at multiple resources and don't look at the basic requirements. So like, yes, can you keep a snake alive in a drawer? Sure, you can. If you give it its basic needs, you feed it, you keep it at a certain temperature. Is that really good quality care for that animal? Is that really thinking the welfare of the animal mentally stimulating, physically stimulating? I would argue no. And that if you really want to be a good pet owner and be the best pet owner you can, you have to be aiming higher than that. I also think of birds under this example. Sarah, what was your experience owning parakeets? How did you feel about it? I did research. I had my books and I read about the, you know, different types of food that I could give them and trying, you know, trying out new different treats and I had the toys. And so I I do think that I met their needs, but that what I did was I got more than one. I got two of them. Yes. Which um I I think was really good because I don't think I actually gave enough attention to them. I don't think that I would have provided enough of that sort of stimulation and socialization um, for them, but they had each other to kind of help with that socialization aspect because birds need a lot. They really need a lot of care. Smaller birds, so the space requirement was was less, um, but just the uh, amount to sort of keep them mentally stimulated is, is a lot. So I'm glad that I went the route of getting two of them i also had two of them but the when we first took them home from like PetSmart or wherever mm-hmm. we got them from the one was sick like you could tell oh, no. pretty soon and so it passed away really soon and the second one got really sad so we got another one mm-hmm. and we ended up a little bit in this cycle of getting birds to replace birds that gotcha. died That is, so we have Luna. Luna is a parrotlet. She is sort of an inherited bird from Andrew's ex-girlfriend who, you know, he basically inherited her from Mm -hmm. them. We only have one. Andrew and I both have agreed that we have no desire to get a bird ever again. And that personally, we probably wouldn't have chosen to get a bird in the first place because we know how needy they are as far as their social requirements are. We didn't want to get another one because what if they hate each other? (laughs) What if you end up in the same cycle of like replacing one bird because the other bird died? Luna's like eight or nine now. So like she's got her routine. She she's a picky bird. Um, a lot of larger birds are basically like toddlers in their attention mm-hmm. needs and their mental stimulation. We have a whole box of toys for Luna. I 
don't consider myself a great bird owner. I do my best for what we can Mm -hmm. do for her, but I always feel like I could be doing more. And were we to have had maybe like, like if we were trying to choose to get a bird or a different pet, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get a bird again because I know how much it takes for them. Yeah. The birds are a huge commitment though that socialization and obviously the bigger bird that you get, the more space that you need and the stronger they are, mm-hmm. man. And, you know, talk about being safe, that there's a risk of injury there from those larger mm-hmm. birds and having a plan for their whole life. Again, with parakeets, it wasn't so much of a concern. They don't live as long, but some bird species can live a really long time as well. So making sure that you have a have the commitment to care for an animal for that one uh, and have a plan in place for their whole life. Right. And uh, I mean, speaking of that, are are you going to have quality care for throughout its lifetime? So if you've got a baby Burmese python or a baby alligator, are you going to have care for when it's a grown-up alligator? I met a man once who was like, look, I get these babies and they're my pets for a couple years. And then I send them up to a sanctuary and and he was talking about an alligator when he was talking oh, about this. And it, it was just, I, I, he was trying to relate to me as an animal lover. It was very difficult because I was like, this is for me as an animal lover. I love my pets. I wouldn't send them <laughs> elsewhere. Right. And that wouldn't be my plan to like get rid of my animal after a certain amount of time. But that's legally kind of what he had to do anyway. Right. But, you know, when it's full grown, even if you have a kid, how many people get rid of their pets once they have a kid? Now, things happen. Life happens. You never know. Yes. But you should be able to plan. Yeah, that shouldn't be your plan, I don't think. Uh, I agree, yeah. If you're planning on having a kid, what's your plan for socializing your dog for your kid? What is your your plan for your very loud parrot that lives in the same house as you? Or maybe you're not going to get a parrot because you know it's going to be very loud. Yeah, and I think this is a big one for those lizards too, and that is, you know, shout out to my dad both both of my parents really because this was one of the things with the iguanas is people would get these little baby cute adorable tiny yes. iguanas that will sit in the palm of your hand and then they're going to grow to be six feet long and very large and I you know I remember my dad you know building an enclosure like getting the books and reading about the dimensions and all of that so building the enclosure and then eventually they had their own room in uh in our house uh, to make sure that we had enough space for uh, all of the lizards and not everybody would be willing to do that so most so people good wouldn't. job to them for, <laughs> for showing me some responsible pet ownership there well another example is um so there's lots of people who in the past at least would get turtles for their kid mm-hmm. as like a easy pet to take care of gosh our tortoises they have inside enclosures. They have outside enclosures. We, Andrew, um, this is a way that I would say separates him from maybe a casual hobbyist. He not only professionally cares for them and talks to people who are experts in the field, mm-hmm. he listens in on conferences and seminars and the latest lights. Lights are like my least favorite thing in the world to talk about because I don't understand them at all, but there are opinions about what kind of lights your reptiles should be under. <laughs> You have to worry about the substrate and the health issues and the social issues between your animals. It's just a whole can of worms. And it it takes a lot of money 
to make sure that we're like up to date on the latest science when it comes to making sure that your tortoise has UVB or your tortoise has the right diet composition based on calcium its calcium ratio and the yeah. calcium supplements and yeah and and what it like Luna our bird she doesn't want her calcium and she doesn't like to use her cuddle bone so she's not oh, trimming yeah. her own beak so we have to trim her beak so like all these little things that you have to think about like oh something went wrong things aren't perfect so now we have to adapt to it even moving into a new house we have them in the basement whoop the basement was drafty so now he had to go and make sure that it wasn't drafty because it was too cold down there for them he built a little greenhouse around some of them because they he noticed that they weren't doing as well because it wasn't maintaining temperature if you think a tortoise is an easy animal to have like you have to think about the things that aren't as applicable to a cat or a dog <laughs> also how many people have let their animals go thinking that was like the best option mm. for them too. Mm-hmm. Man, how many stories have we heard of people who decided that the pet was no longer a good pet for them and just decided that it, it they were going to let it go in the wild and let it do its own thing. So you really have to consider what your plan is over time and, and what your options are. All right. Number four, you've decided you're going to get this pet most likely at this point. You've kind of hopefully filtered out lots of other options. Number four is where is this pet coming from? So many domestic pets suffer from overpopulation. So about 3.1 million million dogs and 3.2 million cats enter shelters every year, according to the ASPCA. Yep. Oh my gosh. Those are high numbers. numbers. Um, And about 920,000 dogs and cats are euthanized each year. That's actually way down compared to like 10 years ago because shelters are getting better at adopting animals out or returning pets to their former owners but like that's too many we have too many animals running around cats and dogs in the united states are just they're they're not treated like they they should be i guess is how i feel about it i've like i said i i volunteered at the shelter It is a challenging environment to volunteer in because you get to see the reality of what pet overpopulation looks like. Basically, the opposite from that is that many wild animal populations are being depleted due to the exotic wildlife trade. So there are lots of species out in the wild who are just being taken straight out and taken into the illegal wildlife trade and legal wildlife trade in some cases, too. So I ranked a list of best to worst places to get an animal. Okay. So let me know if you agree. Number one is an animal rescue. Now, and I'm not saying that this is the only place people should ever get their animals from. Right. Um, this is just, I think, the best place to start. Maybe, yeah. Think about, is this place going to work for you first? Right. So animal rescue. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, your city shelter, although it can be. There are shelters for everything. <laughs> there are mm-hmm. specific dog breed shelters. If you're like, I'm never going to get a golden retriever. You're, you can get a golden retriever from a golden retriever shelter. They're they're out there. That's how I I got my dog from a, what what I would say is a greyhound rescue. Yeah, and I, so I do think that you know there are stipulations here. If asking yourself some of those questions that you need before, you know, sometimes it can be tough getting an animal from a shelter because you know less about their background, and if you have little yeah. kids and you need their, you know, so there are things to think about there, but. Yeah, I feel like this is a a great place to start. Is there a rescue of some kind around you? Right. We've got Ginger, our little rescue dog, is 
just the sweetest little dog. She loves little kids. She this is this little mutt terrier breed didn't really matter to us. We I wanted a dog that couldn't kill my cat very easily mm-hmm. and one that was friendly around other pets and and people and that's what we got her. So we got her from basically a rescue that was foster based that pulled from the city shelter. Th- this is important because these animals need a second chance. They've these are the animals that might be euthanized in a lot of cases. Um, People prefer no kill shelters over kill shelters. Your local, like that's not a real thing. (laughs) The no kill shelter is not morally superior to the kill shelter because most of the time the kill shelter is your city shelter, your county shelter that legally has to take in every animal Mm -hmm. that comes across their door and they only have so much space. So yeah. that's why you have animals that get euthanized. Yeah. And we both know people who work and or volunteer and have volunteered at the shelters in the past and, and all of that. And it is so hard. They work so hard and it's it's a hard thing for everybody. And I mean, I, I adopted my cat from the county animal services and it was just going there was so eye-opening and just how understaffed they were and how many animals they had and but people just really 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 trying to to do their best with what they have a lot of times your city shelter has an extremely low adoption fee and your pet comes with all of their vaccinations Mm -hmm. they're already spayed and neutered so it's really covered well even if you get them from a rescue that does charge a lot of money like ginger wasn't a cheap dog it covers the care for her. And she was a pretty easy case because they also help with a lot of the dogs that have special medical needs at the rescue we got her from that would have just been euthanized because they had to be at the local shelter. So there's a lot of good reasons to look at the shelters first place. This also includes exotic animals like reptiles. There are reptile shelters out there, especially if you want something like a bearded dragon or um, a, a small tortoise species. There are so many of those a a ball python that are in shelters because someone unexpectedly couldn't take care of them their whole life and now they can have a second chance so that's my number one number two is a reputable breeder so like you said sarah some people are looking for something very specific they Mm -hmm. want to know the background of their animal and i think that's okay like i i do think that most people should be looking (laughs) at their city shelter um, but there are lots of people who get their animals, dogs, cats, reptiles from reputable breeders. So and, for, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, and the word reputable is is very important here. It's it's the key. Yeah, we're not talking the- puppy mills here. It's a different right. thing. If you go to a reputable dog breeder, for example, most of the time you're gonna be able to like meet the parents of the puppy. You're going to be able to go to the location where that puppy is being raised, see the like the conditions that they're in at the time. Like this is not generally something that you're doing a transaction over the internet. It's a very personal thing because also those reputable breeders want to know that their puppies are going to a good place. Um, so this is also generally someone who is putting a lot of money into the care of their animals. This is not the guy down the street who just happened to have puppies. This is someone who they they put a lot of money into it. A lot of times these animals are like thousands of dollars. If if you're going to get like a purebred black lab, like we're talking over a thousand dollars typically for those those animals. So that's something to keep in mind. 
if you want a turtle, for example, <laughs> um, sometimes you're not going to find them at the rescue. And so for Andrew, he has a number of species that you're really tracking the genetics of the captive population in the U.S. and trying to make sure that there's a diverse captive population. Um, so he would he knows people in the industry who he's able to kind of vet through other people <laughs> to say like, yes, I've gotten a tortoise from that person and I know their operation and, oh, I've had a conversation. He He's Zoomed with some people in the area. He's part of several conservation groups where they partner with people and they mm-hmm. talk to people. And so he's able to have all those resources to know what a reputable breeder is and in that, the tortoise world. I think in the reptile world is something that is very challenging. Oh, so yeah. yeah, yeah, very important and very difficult. And that, I've talked to Andrew about that before. That's something that's overwhelming to me in terms of reptiles because I'm not in that world uh, the, the way he is. And so, yeah, super, super important. Yes. And we'll talk about why that is in, in a quick sec. Um, number th- three letter C is a pet store. And I'm actually also going to put, or a like reptile show or mm-hmm. a, a, one of those like kind of conventions where they come together and sell pets. Pet stores can source their animals responsibly. Like some of them are just sort of middlemen for responsible dealers, because it is hard to understand, especially in the reptile world, what's a responsible breeder. But a lot of them, for example, they're, if they sell dogs, get their dogs from non-reputable breeders, which if you're familiar with the word puppy mill, that's where a lot of pet store dogs come from. I feel like when I hear the word puppy mill, it like doesn't match the dogs you see at the pet store. Like you just see a cute Mm -hmm. puppy and they're like claim to be a purebred whatever and they're adorable, but you don't get to see where mom and dad are and in puppy mill situations, it's all about maximizing the number of animals that are coming out of the facility to make money. A lot of them are kept in like outdoor to semi-outdoor conditions. They're not socialized. They don't get the best pet care. And in some of those cases, once they become non-useful to the breeder, then they're, they can be euthanized. Um, I know there's a rescue local to me who pulls former breeder dogs all the time from those situations. And there's risks of disease and inbreeding and, and all kinds of things. And so many issues. So, yep. And like, yeah, disease being like you can get a puppy with parvo, for example, mm-hmm. that's not vaccinated. And then you have a bigger issue on your hand. Um, some states have new guidelines. Like I believe New Jersey only allows rescue dogs to be sold at um, pet stores now. So that's a a good thing because most people just don't think about it when they get a puppy from a pet store. And I feel like that is something that I'm seeing more and more of now, which is really nice that you go to a pet store and you see the dogs and cats that are for sale there are actually from local shelters. And so I think a, a lot of the bigger pet stores at least are partnering now with shelters to have adoption days and that kind of things. Nice. Yeah. We like those. Those are good things. Um, You can get reptiles at reptile shows all the time how many people must be suckered in by like a baby sulcata tortoise which like will grow to be over 70 pounds one day but it's cheap because it's there you like you just don't know you're not always given the right informational materials when you go to these situations and you don't necessarily know where that animal came from or what the situation it was raised in so that's something to have some questions for the breeders about in those situations 
Number four is the internet. <laughs> Writ large, the internet. <laughs> um, you can find responsible dealers on the internet. Like, especially if you're new to the tortoise game, for example, like that might be where you identify someone who you can get a animal from. But you can also find so many scammers on the internet, especially in the exotic pet market. So like um, we have salamanders that probably didn't have enough research done into them and quite possibly are not the male and female we were promised. And quite possibly we don't know what the origins are. You don't know where that animal came from if you're interfacing with someone over the internet. And they could come from a reputable facility or they could come from the wild. And so this is something to really keep your eye out for. I've personally seen fake websites claiming to sell radiated tortoises, for example. They're like, oh, it's like $500 for radiated tortoise, which is like super duper cheap for if you knew what you were talking about, Mm -hmm. a radiated tortoise. But also like, no way. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) that's fake. This is not real. Um, And so you would pay $500 to get $500 to take in from you. No animal. Um, That's something the National Primate Research Center warns people that if you try and buy primates off the internet, lots of them just end up victims of scamming. You paid for your spe- your squirrel monkey. It's not coming. They just got scammed out of your money. Yeah. For me, the internet is one where I, it's just a no for me. Like I just yeah. personally, I just wouldn't do it other than like I've used petfinder.com to look sure. for, you know, dogs and cats. Yes. Like, so I will use the internet to find a place where I would physically go right. uh, and get an animal, but I would not be doing any, any animal deals on the internet personally for me. There's just, it, it, it all feels too murky. Yeah. To, do not recommend captive breeding. Even if someone claims that this animal is captive bred, um, it can be a cover for illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, there's the CITES paperwork, as we talked about last episode, has exemptions for captive bred wildlife. There's good reasons for that, but it is often used as a loophole and a cover for people who are trafficking wildlife. They'll claim they came from a breeding center in some country, and really that breeding center doesn't exist. They were poached and they were brought into this country, or they'll take a female that has eggs and they'll bring them into this country, and now that female has laid eggs, so it's captive bred. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the sort of sketchy things that you're really potentially feeding into and that kind of brings us to the last space that you might get your animal from and that is the wild and you shouldn't ever get your animal from the wild i guess if you're like getting an invasive burmese python from the wild (laughs) no don't do that either actually (laughs) we already excluded that i don't know like zoos sometimes will get invasive species from the wild that's my where my brain was going like lionfish which are also venomous fish um they're invasive in Florida, so zoos, a lot of times, instead of breeding them in zoos, will just get captured ones from the wild and put them in that situation because you don't want them as an invasive species in the wild. There's basically no situation I can think of that a private citizen needs to be involved in that. And this is, you know, big things like the we're talking about uh, invasive species and exotic animals that come from other parts of the world this is also a thing that you shouldn't really do with wildlife in your own backyard too and that that is actually a thing that i did when i was younger and and we didn't know and kind of didn't understand and and sort of didn't see the harm like i remember we found a soft shell turtle and i we took it and kept it not permanently but we kept it for a little right. i actually did a 4-h project on it so i learned all about the turtle and we it was presenting information and all of that and then we let it go again 
Um, but even that can cause problems. Even, you know, some of those animals that you find around you, like box turtles, for example, uh, can be uh, protected. And so you're not supposed to be taking them from the wild. And then there's the disease risk and things like that. And uh, are you really putting it back in a place that's safe for it? Are you taking an animal and introducing it or or introducing those animals to disease now or pathogen of some kind? Those sorts of little things that you don't think about. I certainly didn't think about it. I just thought this was a cool animal and I was excited to learn about it. And we got it locally and let it go locally. So, um, you know, probably in the grand scheme of things, me doing that wasn't a huge, huge, huge risk. And like I said, I, I just didn't know better at the time. But there are things like that to think about. And that is why any wildlife expert is going to tell you, please do not take an animal from the wild, even if it seems simple and not like not a big deal. It's just not worth any of the risks. Yeah. So locally, once again, these are not domesticated animals. Mm-hmm. If you're taking them from the wild, they are wild species. They A lot of your native species are unexpectedly maybe listed mm-hmm. on uh, as an illegal species to own. Like those oftentimes were the first things that were illegal to own in your, your state because of game laws. So like in a lot of areas, you can't own a wolf, a lynx, a bobcat, a cougar, that kind of thing. But also certain species of turtle in your area, certain species of snakes in your area, Turtles and tortoises are the most notable species in the world that have populations that are dwindling due to the illegal wildlife trade. So Burmese star tortoise, we actually have one in our basement, (laughs) and we'll talk about her in a second. Um, But they were basically extinct in the wild because people were collecting them for either the pet trade or for making soup. Animals in Southeast Asia and Madagascar are particularly targeted, but so are U.S. species. People are taking box turtles out of the wild all the time and either selling them to other U.S. people or they're selling them over to other countries because they're highly wanted in those areas. Many other reptiles are on that list, as well as some birds and primates that are targets of the legal pet trade and Populations of everything from gibbons to certain snake species are impacted by the transport of live animals across country lines. So yeah, don't get them from the wild. <laughs> um, and and again, that's something to think about in the internet is that you might accidentally right. be getting them from the wild. Number five is what is my breeding plan for this pet? So I, I think this one personally is something I think about a lot because of my experience at the shelter and also having a lot of animals. For most pets, the responsible breeding plan is not to breed them at all. So I would say that's true for most dogs and cats. I love Ginger. She's great. Her her puppies would not be her. And there is no reason to breed her because I know there's lots of other wonderful shelter dogs that when, you know, we don't have Ginger anymore, we can give a home to. I wholeheartedly agree, you know, seeing that 3.1 million dogs and 3.2 million cats is a statistic uh, that just, yeah. Yes. My pets were both fixed when I got them. So <laughs> Yes. And you can talk to your vet because there are like different guidelines for when you should get your pets fixed. For example, um, some vets are now recommending to wait a little bit longer, but then it's your responsibility in that intervening time to make sure that they're not interacting with other unfixed pets. I was reading those Pittsburgh laws, for example. It's not legal to have your dog in heat outside while she's in heat. 
um, for these very reasons. They don't want accidents to happen. And that's something to think about is, again, not perfect situation. What happens if there's an accident? For someone planning on breeding their domesticated pet, you really should look into how much it's going to cost for you. I know that some dogs have to have C-sections. Some dogs need really intensive medical care. You should see if it's something safe for your animal to do in the first place, because if your animal has any sort of um, conditions that might put its health at risk, it's probably not worth it. You should look at what all of your options are for what's going to happen to those animals after you breed them. We worked with someone who bred dogs and she talked about how her clause and her contract for adopting them out was that if they didn't want the dog anymore, that they would return it to her first. That was something that, you know, is is a sign that she she wanted to make sure she was responsible on what happened yeah. to that animal that she was bringing into the world. So those are all things you should really, I'm not an animal, domestic animal breeder, so I don't know all of the things, but you should do a lot of research on yeah, this. I'm not either, but I know people who, you know, I, I just want to say too, like as much as I, just said you know to me I, I don't bring my pets but I know people who are in the dog show world and right. do you know have the purebred dogs and do that type of thing and I totally get that and I'm not uh, trying to be anti that in any way shape or form it's just people need to know what what they're getting into you need to be the reputable breeder yeah exactly <laughs> you're, the there you go. you're the reputable breeder yeah. um, for someone who's planning on breeding their exotic pet I think you should ask yourself a couple questions. The first one is, are you planning on keeping the babies or selling them? So, you know, if you're deciding that you're going to add more species to your collection for their life, that's kind of more of a personal choice. Again, you maybe should think again about, well, is, are there rescue ones that could use this space in my home instead of having babies? If you're planning on selling them, is there adequate demand for this species? So maybe look at those rescues and see if there is a bunch of ball pythons in there. Maybe there's enough ball pythons out there already. Sulcatas, again, an animal that like if you breed them could have dozens of eggs. And so now you have dozens of baby tortoises that are going to grow up. That There's not enough demand to warrant that versus some of the species that we have. They're, for example, pancake tortoises. Pancake tortoises are critically endangered species out in the wild. They are primarily threatened because of the pet trade. And so when you have a more robust captive population, captive bred population, it is can be cheaper to then buy a captive bred animal versus a wild animal and helps cut the demand for the, this is at least the theory. There's a lot of like science mm -hmm. behind what works in some situations and what doesn't but the theory is basically flood the market with these captive bred individuals and there's less demand and therefore less incentive for people to poach them out of the wild okay at this point pancake tortoises are so endangered that they are keeping track a lot of the genetics of those captive bred populations for conservation groups and so it something that you can keep track of and potentially be a part of a breeding situation that is making sure that there's a genetically diverse captive population because the animals in the wild might be gone entirely and you need to make sure that your population in human care is healthy. So these are things that, for example, Andrew researches um, and pancake tortoises only have one to two eggs at a time. So it's not something where the market's flooded. It's actually something that's the reason people poach them out of the wild is that there's not enough mm -hmm. of them to meet demand. So if you're going to get into that situation, I really want to recommend that you 
check out something like the Turtle Survival Alliance, where they'll be able to talk you through a little bit more of what the issues are with that species and what responsible pet ownership might look like in that scenario. Yeah, I think really thinking about what your goal for doing this is to kind of circling back up to that first question that we asked ourselves, like, what is your goal or reason for wanting to breed this animal too? And I think, yeah, being looped in with some of those conservation organizations might be a helpful guide with that question. Yeah. Um, If you're not the expert, try and connect yourself with as many experts as there are. And then another thing to ask is, will breeding this animal cause health defects for the parents or the baby? Um, There are fancy ball pythons that people breed. Like, think about an albino snake, for example. I think everybody's seen an albino Burmese python at some point. Um, They uh, they brought one to my school when I was a kid. You might be projecting a little bit. Though, to being in the zoo world. I don't know. No, when I was in middle school, we would have a traveling animal show come and they brought like a 20 foot. If you saw a snake that you're like, that one's like a giant banana. That's (laughs) probably the giant albino Burmese python. Um, That's might be okay. Maybe I am projecting, but in my experience, (laughs) I've seen a lot of them. Um, people bred a lot of times because that trait is so uncommon to occur naturally. They've been bred specifically for that trait. And people have done this so much with snakes like ball pythons that you can get special patterns and special colors. But a lot of times this is done through inbreeding. And when you inbreed your animal, they can have some genetic defects. So spider morph ball pythons oftentimes have a head wobble, which is indicative of a neurological instability. I feel like if you saw a dog with this head wobble, you would automatically be like, something is very wrong with this dog. But because it's a reptile, there's a little bit less, um, I think, quick acceptance (laughs) about this being a issue to start seeing in these animals. Uh, When it's severe, it can impact their ability to feed and, 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 a lot of times when you get these kind of fancy ones, the breeder's not necessarily going to disclose to you how severe this head wobble is, um, especially if you don't get to see the animal in person ahead of time. So to me, same thing with like certain dog species that have really short yeah, snouts. That's what I was thinking it, about as you were talking, actually. Right. We, we do it in domestic. I mean, basically, this is an effort to quote domesticate snakes in a way is to Mm -hmm. breed them for traits we find desirable Mm -hmm. um we've done this with dogs to their detriment there are dogs that are more likely to have hip dysplasia or short snouted dogs that have issues with breathing because it's just like so compressed or they have eye issues or dalmatians are deaf so like what what are the consequences of you breeding this animal is are you going to bring a healthy animal into this world that's going to have a loving home for the rest of its life and its needs are going to be able to be met are we breeding this trait because people like it or are we breeding this trait because it's actually good for the animal i think that like obviously we can't put aside human aesthetics that's how we got dogs but <laughs> but uh is it detrimental then to that animal for it to have certain aesthetics that's, I think, the things you got to think about with breeding your animals. Sarah, that's my general list. <laughs> There's a lot. Those are all, I, but I think those are all really good things to kind of ask yourself before getting a pet. And then, yeah, even leading up to as an owner, you know, like your your plan for the life of that pet. I feel like this was sort of timely. We should have done this like 
three weeks Before ago. Christmas. People were, <laughs> you, you do hear that a lot about people um, doing the pets for Christmas. But but yes, yeah, so those are all, all good things to think about for your future pet considerations. <laughs> right. And it's something that uh, I feel like sorry I would just like everybody listening to know that we have now we've had to pause our recording multiple times for Casey and my current pets causing drama they're like our ears are buzzing my my dog and cat have been uh having a face-off Casey's got a cat tail in her face Luna's been the good one she's been quiet the whole time Just think about uh, think about your future podcasting requirements before you get a pet. No, it was a great list, Casey. As usual, um, you uh, just I I love all of the things that you brought up. I, I think like animals change your life. When mm-hmm. you bring an animal into your life, you can't expect your life to stay exactly the same. You will have new chores and new tasks to do. You really have to think about it. And pet ownership is not just about the human involved; it's about the animal too. So. Just make sure you're making those decisions. And I think it's important to have this kind of conversation with yourself multiple times yeah. <laughs> to make sure that you're covering all the things that that might come up and accidents happen. Life is unexpected. I don't think that people who run into situations where they do have to give up their animal or yeah. like that happens for legit reasons yep. all the time. And sometimes it's the best choice for the yes, animal. People really do it the, with the animal in mind, for sure. Right. But I think asking these questions, if everybody asked themselves all of these questions, we would be in less of these situations with so many animals in shelters or animals released out into the wild unnecessarily um, or animals in poor welfare situations. So that's that's my list. I'm sure I'll think of more. I'm sure you guys will think of more. Let's stick around. We'll do our wrap up in just a moment. All right, we are at the challenge portion of our episode where every week we challenge you to do something related to the topic at hand. Um, The first one, it's, you know, it's around Christmas. Maybe you got a new pet. Maybe you are like promised Timmy that he gets a new pet for the new year. Do your research before bringing home a new pet. Um, Hey, if you have a pet now, maybe do some research on the one you got. As I said, like things change about them all the time. Andrew's constantly coming up with new things we have to do for the tortoises. There are new things coming out for birds. The dog and cat need new things too. (laughs) This is a living creature that you are bringing home. This is not an object. So yeah, we should take the time, do your research. Yep. Be honest with yourself. Keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Keep doing it. Um, if you have a, especially if you have an exotic pet species that is your dream pet, or I mean, there's probably domesticated ones for this too, but if you have a, an exotic pet species that's your dream pet, join a conservation group for them before you even yes. consider pursuing anything related to this, even if they fit all of the things I just checked on the list there, join the conservation group, see if they need any sort of protection see what their issues are and you might be able to connect with people who if they agree that they can safely and ethically be kept as pets they might be able to connect you with someone who is reputable and that is not going to sell you something from the wild if you're into domestic pet that you don't know if you can get yet there's lots of like enthusiast groups for those too there are 
um, American Kennel Club associations for different types of animals. So you can take a look, see if you can learn a little bit more about the species before you commit to having them at home. And then as you plan your budget for the next year, make sure you factor your pets into any emergency funds you have. So like Rue had to have a dental once and they told me it would cost between $200 and $1,200. And the nurse was like, well, because I started to cry. (laughs) She's like, well, if you just put away $10 every month, I'm like, the cat's not that old. (laughs) It still wouldn't cover any of it. But it is something to to keep in mind. If something were to happen, there's an accident, some illness yeah. happens. Do you have money that you think you could cover something happening for them? Just keep them in mind in your emergency plans. I do want to just add to, I don't know, this isn't really a challenge more. So just something I, I wanted to kind of mention because we brushed on it. it. If you do find yourself in a situation where you have a pet that you feel that you shouldn't have, or, you know, you've were like me when I was 10 or whatever and I took this soft shelter out of the wild and now I'm like thinking that I'm going to put it back for the good of the animal. Research how to responsibly get that animal to the place that it needs to be. So for those exotic animals, sometimes you're, you might have amnesty days or things like that, that are, are local. So, so before you let an animal go into the wild or whatever, if you feel like you have an animal that you can't handle, just do some research on that end as well to look and see what the responsible thing to do is there. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And, and if you're in also a short-term situation where you're having issues with like an animal, Um, I know when I lived in Indianapolis, they had a group that would help repair fences or give you like, you know, new cages or dog houses to make sure that animals who were housed outside were in better conditions. You might have resources in your local area to help tide you over so you get your feet back underneath you so that you don't have to give up your pet that otherwise you might be able to take care of. So yeah, do your research. Check out what your resources are out there. Make sure everything's good for your pet, for you, and for the environment, too. Yeah. Sarah, if the people want to reach us, where can they reach us? All over. We're on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram, at A Little Greener Pod. We're at, on Twitter, at A Greener Podcast. And you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, Sarah, for all your input. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye.